So um, I'm going to invite Kid Moore to come and give us our New Testament reading, which is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 2, 5. Kid Moore. Christ crucified is God's power and wisdom. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not men were influential. Not men were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of, the world, of this world, the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is, it is because of him that you are in Christ, in Christ Jesus, who has become of us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence of human wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I, revolved, I resolved to know any, nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in the weakness with great fear and trembling. My message, my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. So, uh, very small children, let's say preschoolers, um, of course they can be highly intelligent, um, but I don't think we generally describe them as being wise. Uh, if given the choice, most small children would eat chocolate for breakfast. They'd eat it until they felt sick or maybe beyond that point. They'd have no set time for sleeping. they just collapse in a heap uh, when they ran out of energy. You might be thinking, well, I do that. Uh, oftentimes, they don't even have the good sense to use the toilet when and where they ought to. Uh, a trip to the bathroom is seen as an unnecessary and boring diversion um, from whatever it is they happen to be doing. 
Uh, the things small children do, the decisions they make, the perspective they have is all perfectly rational and reasonable to them. Uh, that's why uh, sometimes they get so upset when you try to steer them in the right direction. But as adults, we can see that their choices are often anything but wise. You know, they find things on the floor, don't they? You know, they find a, a screw or something, and it's kind of like, well, okay, maybe it's not a good idea to eat that, or push it into the plug socket, or jam it into the USB port on daddy's laptop. Uh, those, are, those are not really uh, wise choices. Of course, we don't speak to two-year-olds like that. You don't say, that's not a wise choice. You uh, see what they're doing. You panic, and you dive across the room going, no! And it doesn't stop there. As parents of grown-up children will know, sometimes parents have to watch their children make the most dreadful decisions knowing that in all likelihood it's not going to turn out well. But if a grown-up child refuses to listen to advice, what, what can the parent do? Well, all the parent can do is pray for them and be there to pick up the pieces. Now, so far, we've been looking outward at the lack of wisdom that we see in other people, as if uh, everything we say and do is entirely wise, sensible, and rational. But that's not the case, is it? How many of us have made really unwise decisions as adults? It's got to be all of us, hasn't it? I know I have. And if we think we're wise compared to a two-year-old, how great is the difference between God's wisdom and ours? I mean, even the uh, wisest, most intelligent person by human standards must at times seem very unwise to God. Today's passage is about true wisdom, which is God's wisdom, and false wisdom, which is the world's wisdom. We cannot conceive of anything that is good, wise, right, or true that God doesn't already know. Human beings can add nothing to God's wisdom. Seeking wisdom without seeking God first is an exercise in futility because true wisdom comes from God. But God's wisdom is often counterintuitive. God doesn't always do things in the way uh, that we expect him to. And that's just as well, because if God had the mind of a mere human being, there'd be no hope for any of us. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 to 9, it says this, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are, my, are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God acts in ways that might be surprising to us, because his knowledge is limitless, his wisdom is perfect, and his love is infinite. And the place we see that more clearly than anywhere else is on the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And he goes on to explain why the Christian message seems like foolishness to both Jews and Greeks. And in the ancient world, 
um, from a Jewish perspective, there were two groups of people. There were Jews, and there was everyone else. There was the non-Jews, described as Gentiles or Greeks. Paul says the Jews demand a sign. In other words, they're not going to believe in anything unless they first see a dramatic sign from God. And to be fair, in the Old Testament, uh, God does demonstrate his power with dramatic signs. When God freed his people from slavery in Egypt, he parted the Red Sea so that they could cross to safety and uh, not get slaughtered by the pursuing Egyptian army. That is a dramatic sign. However, within a very short space of time, the Israelites were complaining against God and grumbling that things were better for them in Egypt. And there are countless examples of this in the Old Testament. So dramatic signs do not have a good track record of bringing the people closer to God. The generation that God delivered from Egypt saw plenty of signs but that didn't seem to increase their wisdom. Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Fear in the sense of reverence, respect, and obedience. Well, by that measure, the Israelites were anything but wise because they continually rebelled against God. And when God showed up in the person of Jesus Christ, visible signs did nothing to persuade those who refused to believe. Jesus healed people's diseases. He restored sight to the blind. He cleansed lepers. He even raised at least three people from the dead. And in spite of all that, a group of Pharisees and teachers of the law, they came to Jesus and they said, Teacher, we want you to show us a sign. As if Jesus was some kind of magician who'd just do a a sign to to satisfy their, their curiosity. And here's Jesus' reply. He said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. But none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus was, of course, pointing to his death and burial three days in the tomb. And just as uh, the prophet Jonah came out of the whale alive, so too Jesus would come out of the tomb alive. That's what Jesus is alluding to. But even Jesus' resurrection was not enough to make the religious leaders believe. And by rejecting Jesus, they continued to abandon wisdom and embrace folly. Those who ask for a sign are not looking for a reason to believe. This is true today. Uh, They're looking for a reason to reject Jesus because their minds are already made up. So the Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. Everyone has heard about the Greek philosophers, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and so on. And whether we realize it or not, our thinking, especially in the West, is to some extent influenced by them. Uh, We talk a lot about influencers now, don't we? On the uh, social media, you get these influencers. Well, the Greek philosophers were the original influencers. And uh, just like today's influencers, their influence often led people astray. The best-known philosophers, of course, lived hundreds of years before Christ. 
uh, but their influence lived on. And the uh, philosophers of Paul's day continued to engage in endless discussions and debates, and they were effectively trying to speculate their way to knowledge, truth, and wisdom. They were trying to answer life's big questions without acknowledging the one true God of the universe, whose character and purposes are most clearly seen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Human beings cannot think or reason their way to God. And those who attempt to do so invariably end up creating God in their own image. Not only do they create a God who makes sense to them, they create a God who is convenient for them. Uh, A God that uh, suits their purposes. The kind of God or gods that made sense to the Greeks and the Romans are the polar opposite of the God whom we worship. For example, the Greeks didn't think of God in personal terms. Uh, And we are literally talking about Greeks because uh, the city of Corinth was and is the remains of it in Greece. Um, For them, one of the key characteristics of God was apatheia. Apatheia is is a complete inability to feel. They worship gods that couldn't feel anything, couldn't physically feel things. Contrast that with a God who not only experienced human emotions, but who knows what it is to be hungry and thirsty. A God who has felt the pain of a crown of thorns being jammed on his head, has felt the pain of being whipped, has felt the pain of nails being hammered into his hands and his feet. And this all sounded like total foolishness to the Greek way of thinking. Where is the wisdom in an all-powerful God subjecting himself to that? So Jews demanded signs. Greeks look for wisdom. From a worldly perspective, from a purely human perspective, it is impossible to make sense of, it is impossible to see the wisdom in the God of the universe being nailed to a cross. But God has made himself unknown and unknowable by human wisdom. The only way that we can know God is if he reveals himself to us, and he has in the person of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus, no one could conceive of a God who was all-powerful and at the same time entirely humble and supremely loving. No one had come up with this concept of a God. The human mind couldn't conceive of this kind of a God. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And this is still true today. I read an article recently. It was an amusing article, and I think the title was something like 20 ways you might experience culture shock in Australia. And it was things like you might see us walking barefoot in the supermarket. Uh, We eat both the animals that appear on our coat of arms. Um, Expect to have friendly conversations with shop assistants. I've got to admit, it still throws me when I'm buying a pair of trainers or something and the, uh, the shop assistant says, oh, have you got the day off today? 
Well, what are you doing later on today? That might seem perfectly normal to you, but coming from England, that's very unusual. If you think that's a personal thing to be asking me. <laughs> there are cultural differences. So it was an amusing article. But it's the last one that stuck in my mind. It said something like this. It said, we don't believe in your fairy tale religious views. So keep that nonsense to yourselves. Of course, that article didn't represent the views of all Australians, but I suspect that that view is quite worldly, widely held, uh, not just here, but in other Western nations too. In the modern secular world, there is a tendency to lump all religious beliefs together and dismiss the whole lot as foolishness. Although Paul lived in a very religious society, the response to the gospel, at least initially, the response to the Christian message was more or less the same 2,000 years ago. But Paul also talks about those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks. And we know that Jews and Gentiles did put their faith in Jesus in ever-increasing numbers. And we know that today, many who dismiss Christianity as foolishness will, in the course of time, accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. There are probably a number of people in this church who at some point in their life dismiss Christianity as foolishness and now know and love Jesus. I've seen it so many times. So who are these people that God calls? Who are they? Are they the wise, the strong, and the powerful? Are they the rich, the famous, and the glamorous? Are they the kind of people that the ancient world thought that God would favor? Are they the kind of people that our culture tends to put onto a pedestal? No. Because actually most people don't fit any of those categories. In verse 26, Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. So some may have been wise, influential, and of noble birth, but not many. You see, God isn't looking for a certain set of qualifications. He's not seeking out the great and the good. His kingdom is available to anyone who will humble themselves, repent, and put their faith and their trust in Jesus. But it's very difficult for the rich and the powerful and those who are wise in their own eyes to do that. Pride is a huge obstacle. It's a very difficult thing to overcome, and it keeps many from the kingdom of heaven. Verses 27 to 28 say this, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. When Jesus was wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe surrounded by mocking soldiers, he looked foolish, weak, and lowly. When he was hanging from a cross, he looked completely powerless at the mercy of those who despised him. 
and yet God's plan to defeat sin and death and to restore the whole of creation has been accomplished through him and especially through his willingness to die the death of a common criminal, even though he's the only person in history who never did anything wrong. God turns human notions of power, wisdom, and greatness on their heads. Jesus came into the world in a way that no one could have imagined. No one could have imagined Almighty God coming into the world in such a humble way, being born in a stable, laid in a manger. He carried out a rescue plan for the world that no one could have foreseen. Who could have foreseen the all-powerful God of the universe being nailed to a cross and crucified? And even to this day, he fulfills his purposes through the most unlikely people, people like you and me, often through people whom the world would write off. The Apostle Paul was, in human terms, the, most, uh, the person most responsible for building the church. And yet he wasn't even a great orator. He wasn't a great speaker. That's surprising, isn't it? In ancient Corinth, people wanted to hear articulate, clever-sounding wordsmiths. What was being said was of secondary importance to how it was being said. But Paul wasn't one of those great speakers. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, speaking of himself, he writes, For some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So Paul wasn't like one of those highly acclaimed, influential speakers that they were used to hearing in Corinth. And you know what? We don't have to be clever and articulate to lead people to Christ. We just have to be willing to speak up. Paul goes on to say, I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Do you ever feel weak? Inadequate? Fearful? In a way, I hope that you do, because God can use that. God can't use the person who is full of pride and self-reliance, the person who thinks they're invincible. Well, God can use that person, but first they have to drop their pride and admit their weakness. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. God's ways might seem foolish to the world, but isn't that what we would expect from a world that has turned its back on God? The choice is simple. Accept the world's wisdom and perish. Or accept God's wisdom and be saved. The cross is where Jesus paid the price for your sin and my sin. It is the only means by which we can come back into a right relationship with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are higher than our thoughts. The way that you have enacted this plan to renew and restore the whole of creation, including us, is beyond human wisdom. 
beyond human understanding, but you have revealed it to us. You revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we'll give you our full allegiance and our worship and that we'll live our lives in a way that is pleasing to you and beneficial not just to ourselves but to the people around us and to the world around us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.